Go with me to James chapter 5, would you please? James chapter 5. James chapter 5. I was recently listening to a sermon by Pastor Stephen Lawson, who wisely suggested that if today you went to town and you found in the middle of the road an overturned armored car and millions of dollars were spilling out of its broken open back doors and people were gathered around scooping up all the money that they could get and no one was stopping them. But across the street was a store selling Bibles. You should skip the millions and go buy a Bible. Because the value of faith in Jesus Christ, I didn't hear any amens there, because the value, the value of faith in Jesus Christ and the wealth of God's word to change your life is worth more than millions and millions of dollars. Now, I know you, I, I tricked you into saying that, didn't I? You might doubt that statement, but I believe he's right because I've seen the power of faith in Jesus Christ. I've seen the power of of God's word to change lives. But I'm not just speaking from the evidence I've seen. I'm also speaking from what God's word teaches. And I believe as we enter James chapter 5 that this is the same challenge we're going to hear from James So far in this letter, James has addressed his readers as brothers, brethren, that is, you know, fellow believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, he's done it some 14 times so far. But here at the beginning of chapter 5, we don't hear that. We don't see that. Not only is there a lack of that call to the brethren to change their ways with repentant attitudes, but what we find here instead is a declaration, in fact, that there will be weeping and there will be howling because of the coming judgment the unbelieving sinful rich will go through. Note the scriptures. Look at James chapter 5 with me, beginning at verse 1. I'll read through verse 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers you who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James tells it like it is, doesn't he? So instead of being calls to repentance like we've been hearing. We've heard before in this letter these calls to repentance. These first six verses of James chapter 5 are more like 
declarations of coming judgment found in the Old Testament. You hear these kinds of things in the Old Testament. This is much like those. And what we see here is that James calls out and denounces four sins that the ungodly, wicked, rich were committing. And the challenge to believers is that these are the things that ought not be true of them. These are the things that followers of Christ ought not be caught up in. So note verse 1 and the coming judgment James points to. Look at verse 1 again. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is very different from how James commanded believers to feel about their own sins. Back in chapter 4, verse 9, where he said, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The point there was confession of sin. There, James charges that believers ought to be miserable over their own sin. That's appropriate. To the point of wholehearted repentance and turning from that sin to obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in chapter 5 and verse 1, instead of calling for repentance, James is sounding a warning cry that there will be great misery for those who live as described here in these first six verses because of the judgment of God, which God will bring on them. That's what James is pointing to in verse 1 when he speaks of their weeping and howling. When God's judgment comes on the rich who were ungodly and wicked, who refuse to repent and turn and believe in Jesus Christ, and in their wickedness take advantage of people who are poor and needy and selfishly keep to themselves what they could have shared with others, God will be holding this against them in the day of judgment and there will be much weeping and holding, uh, howling. And why will this weeping and howling exist at God's judgment? Because, look at number one here, look at verses two and three, because God will be punishing them for their hoarding. That's what we see in verses two and three. The first sin that James calls out is the sin of hoarding. That's their, their first sin. And James is very clear about it. He says in verse two, your riches have rotted. And your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. What we're seeing here is hoarding because riches rot when they get piled up, neglected, and go unused, correct? In those days in which James writes, riches often consisted not only of money. We often think of riches as, as wealth upon wealth, right? Piled upon wealth, money, some sort. Some sort of currency, right? Something representative of currency. In those days, it wasn't only currency. It wasn't only money, but also of stockpiled grain. Also stockpiled oil, collected oil, and costly garments even. What James is condemning here is the hoarding of riches. And he's talking about hoarding here because if it's rotting, it's likely, you know, you think about what rots. Food rots, right? You pile it up, and if you don't use it, it's going to go to waste. It rots. You have a drawer like that in your refrigerator where you buy those vegetables with good intentions and you eat the cookies instead for the week, and you later you open that drawer and go, oh, I forgot about the cucumbers and the carrots and the 
Ay, 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 throw those away. Right? What happens if you don't use them? They rot. Now, I'm not saying James is condemning your eating of cookies, necessarily. But what he's talking about is this hoarding of this of the of the stockpiles of grain. What happens when they when they go unused just because I, I can and I will and I'm gonna collect and I'm gonna pile up and I'm gonna keep this all to myself? And it goes unused and it rots. He's talking about the stockpiling of food that would never be used. And they were piling up all this food that would go go to waste. And in the process, they would end up neglecting and oppressing the needy poor, whom they could have helped if they hadn't been hoarding. Now, it might seem strange to us, as he talks about costly garments, it might seem strange to us when you can go to Walmart and buy a pair of pants for $10. Of course, you wouldn't do that, would you? Well, they sell trousers and things like that, $10, $15. Amazing what you can go and buy these days. But in those days, uh, there was great value attached to clothing. Some pieces of clothing would fetch quite a price. And it might seem strange to us that costly garments were a way to hoard wealth, but we can see it when you look at the Old Testament. You even see it in the New Testament. You think about them dividing the garment of Jesus. Remember, they fought over that. Who would get that? Because that was a valuable piece of material. Sometimes costly garments were even used to pay for services rendered. So you can see how if I keep this and I keep that and I collect this and I buy this costly garment, I'm going to collect all these things. I may never be able to wear them, but but I have great wealth because I have these expensive garments. But what happens to garments that go unused? Have you ever gone to the closet to pull out one of those sweaters you haven't worn for a couple of years and you go, oh, my word, look at that hole? What happens? Moths happen, Right? What happens to garments that go unused? They become moth-eaten. No garment is going to become moth-eaten that you're wearing, right? <laughs> but the one that goes unused does. And so James says, look, your, your things are falling apart. Your, your garments are moth-eaten. And so James charges the ungodly wicked who were rich with hoarding, and it could be seen in the hoarding of these riches of money and of food and of clothing. But that's not all. Their gold and silver had corroded, says James. Now, we know that gold and silver doesn't rust, right? How does gold and silver corrode? Well, I think he's talking about their gold and silver was so unused that it was tarnished for lack of use. And James says that their stockpiled and tarnished wealth in various forms will one day, very serious here, one day this will testify as evidence against you in the day of God's judgment. Now, I would ask this question, is there something, maybe you're thinking this, is there something wrong then with saving? Is there something wrong then with investing? No, certainly not, and the Bible encourages saving and investing wisely, but that's not what was going on here. What is the purpose for your saving and investing? This was hoarding for the sake of having all one could get, and there were valuable resources going to waste that could have helped people who were in serious need. God's word talks to us about being wise and shrewd and careful spenders and and wise investors. It is wise to invest for your future provision, but do we need to be 
Hoarding is the question. That's the challenge that James is bringing to the church. And he's saying, look at the, the ungodly rich. God is going to hold them accountable for their hoarding. And what James is challenging believers with here is that there is no place for this kind of hoarding of wealth in the life of a follower of Christ. In fact, we heard it earlier in James 3, in verse 17 and 18, that the attitude of the Christ-like believer will be one that is shaped by the wisdom that is from above. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, God has called believers to be peacemakers and those who are grateful to God for his goodness and generous with those who are in need. And yes, he wants us to be wise savers, wise investors. He does not want us to to be foolish with the resources that he has entrusted to our care, but he does call us to live with wisdom from above, pure in thought, peaceable in attitude, gentle in nature, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, looking for ways that we can use what God has blessed us with for his glory and the good of those who are in need. And so James is warning believers here with this declaration of God's judgment that is coming on the rich and unrepentant and godless wicked that as followers of Christ, they aren't to be caught up in this kind of selfish and hoarding lifestyle. And we know from God's word that the, the opposite is to be true of those who, who've been forgiven such a great debt by God. Think of it. We have been forgiven our sins, something we could not purchase with all the money on earth. Just as our own sins have been forgiven in Christ, we are to live with hearts that are gracious and and grateful to God and gracious toward the needs of others. Giving when we, when we can. When God has blessed us to give and provide and help where we can. And not hoard. Now, note also that James was charging the rich, ungodly, wicked with withholding wages. Look at verse 4. Withholding wages. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So these unscrupulous, wealthy landowners were, here they are withholding and keeping back what they had promised to pay the workers in their field, and they were keeping back by fraud what was rightfully the workers. And note something interesting here. James says it's as if The wages being withheld are crying out to the Lord of hosts against them, as were the cries of the harvesters themselves. And their cries, guess what? God had heard them. God had heard, and they had reached the ears of God because God always hears the cries of his suffering people. God listens and he hears and he answers. God is, after all, the Lord of hosts. You see it here? He's the Lord of hosts, which is in the original language meant the Lord of the armies. Think of it. God is the Lord of hosts. Host in the Hebrew sometimes referred to 
hosts of angels or hosts of stars, and God is, of course, the Lord of all angels and the Lord of the stars as well as the Lord of all earthly armies and all the, all the heavenly armies of angels. God is the Lord of hosts. What does that tell you about God? He's in charge. He's in control. And you dare not go against the God of the universe and go against what he stands for and believes in and requires of us. And it is unwise to oppose God Almighty, which is what James is warning believers to avoid. Don't go against God's desire for his people. Followers of Christ are to pay a fair wage to whom it's due. God's word reminds believers as it does in 1 Timothy 5.18, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. It is only right, says the Lord, to pay those whom you have hired to do work, to what, they're, what they deserve, what they are owed, and believers are not to be found guilty of withholding wages. You promise to pay someone for the work that they're doing for you, pay them in a timely manner, quickly. Withholding wages and oppressing the poor is not to be found in the lives of believers. Those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ have been forgiven such a great debt, yes? And we're to live with gratitude and grateful and gracious hearts. We're also instructed in Proverbs 3, 27 and 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When it is in your power to do it, do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I'll give it, when you have it with you. As God's people This is the challenge from James. As God's people, we are to be quick to lend and gracious to give to those in need and quick to pay wages that are owed. That glorifies God. It's only right, right? There was also something else James was charging the ungodly rich with that would bring grief on them at at God's judgment. Number three, he points to luxury and self-indulgence. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, luxury and self-indulgence. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Luxury and self-indulgence, says James to the ungodly rich. These are the things you've fattened yourself with for the day of of God's judgment. You're approaching God's judgment and you're making yourselves fat for that day. In the original language, the two words for luxury and self-indulgence have very similar meanings, but there are subtle differences here. The word for luxury carried the meaning of, of living a soft life that tends to demoralize. And the word for self-indulgence carried the meaning of extravagant and wasteful living. And James says here that this kind of luxurious, self-indulgent, wasteful living, giving your hearts everything you desire is only fattening you, piling upon guilt upon guilt for the day of God's judgment. And he says, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Of course, in that day, that kind of language provided a vivid illustration for Jewish believers who had seen many a fattened sheep and ox led in for sacrifice. But again, the point James is making is that this kind of living, this kind of lavishing upon yourself with 
you know, whatever your heart desires is not becoming of the one who is trusted in Christ, who gave himself up, who gave his life to save sinners. In fact, with the example of Christ, who came to serve and not be served, who came to be a sacrifice for many, believers are to live as Christ lived, giving ourselves, giving of our whole lives. I'd rather have Jesus than anything, right? That's what God calls us to, following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Living lives characterized by gracious acts of generosity, not selfish luxuries, self-indulgent, luxurious ways of living that neglect the needs that surround us. There's one more sin, the ungodly and wicked rich were guilty of, and James points to it when he says that they were guilty of murder, murder of righteous men. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. You see in their thirst for more and more wealth, the ungodly rich were guilty of hauling off innocent men to court and they had actually succeeded in bringing condemnation and even death on them. Some translations use the word just or innocent man, where the English Standard Version, which I read from this morning, uses righteous, and I think that describes a little bit better for us what it means. He's talking about a follower of Christ. He's talking about one who is righteous before God. What James has in mind here, according to the original language, is is a righteous person, a believer whose life has been been taken, a believer whose life has been persecuted even to death. And he likely doesn't have any one person in mind here, but a class of people. And we know of some of those who were righteous and did not resist those who sought to persecute and eventually murder them, right? We think of the Lord Jesus Christ first, don't we? There were others, Stephen, James, the son of Zebedee, later this James who wrote this letter, each one righteous before God, each one murdered. So what had started out as a lust for more and more wealth, more possessions, more belongings, just because I can, and lavishing yourself with whatever you want, what started out as a hunger and thirst for lavishing oneself with all the comforts of this life had actually led down a path of murder. And this most certainly is not to be God's people. Now you might say, well, I would never murder anyone. I don't suggest that you would. But you can see, you can see the danger of being controlled by your passion for riches, right? And where that passion, that uncontrolled desire will take you and how far it will take you. No, instead, a child of God who longs to grow in the likeness of Christ, who longs to be growing strong spiritually, will not be distracted by the pursuit of wealth. He or she will not get caught up in longing for more and more and more things piled upon things, but will be learning to share with those in need. That's what God is calling us to. That's what James is challenging the believer in his day with. Do not be caught up in the pursuit of wealth. 
The warning from James is clear. There is great poverty in wealth without God. It won't mean anything for you to have wealth if you do not have God. It won't mean anything for you to have riches if you don't have the reward, the once and final reward of having your sins washed away by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are an unrepentant rich person, you will stand before God at the day of judgment, says James, just as an unrepentant poor person will, the difference being the wealth of the selfish rich person will cry out against them in condemnation on the day of God's just judgment. And so if you have a choice to make between a pile of wealth, untold millions of dollars laying in the middle of the road waiting for you to scoop up and put in your trunk, if you have a choice between that and buying a Bible, buy the Bible. Read God's word. Submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And then obey God's word and be changed. As we heard from Psalm 19 earlier, the law of the Lord, that's talking about God's word, the law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect. It holds all we need. And the God-honoring believer will agree with God and agree with God's word that more to be desired are they, that's God's precepts, God's word, God's truth. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. So I would ask you, as you bow your heads with me this morning, as we prepare to close with a word of prayer, I would ask you to ask yourself, what am I doing with what God has given me? What am I doing with what God has entrusted to my care? How am I using what God has blessed me with? And as a follower of Christ who's been forgiven so much, what am I doing with what God has blessed me with as a child of God? You may not feel like you are a rich person, but I believe that we are far better off than we think we are at times. We are far wealthier than we would admit. We have been blessed mightily, richly. So will you ask yourself today, what am I doing with what God has given me? How am I honoring God with what he has entrusted to my care? And if you are an unbeliever here today, I would plead with you, don't leave this place until you put your faith in Christ who alone can save and satisfy your soul. Riches cannot do it. Riches cannot save you from hell. Believer, are you willing to humble yourself before the Lord today? And as we sang, I'd rather have Jesus mean it with your whole heart and your whole life. That's the challenge for us, isn't it? May we humble ourselves before God today and always that his word would change and shape us in the shape of the Lord Jesus Christ and his obedience before God. That we might honor and glorify God with everything that he has entrusted to us with our whole life. Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths of the word. 
Sometimes they arrest our attention. They capture our heart and and sometimes land heavily on our toes. And sometimes it's painful to be confronted with the truth, but you know we need it. That's why you call your word sharper than any two-edged sword, because you want it to cut, to write, right to where we need it in our lives, to change us and shape us and fashion us in the, in the image of your obedient Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray for believers today that you would have our affections, that we would make serving you and obeying you and knowing your word our highest priorities, not the pursuit of wealth. And God, with what you have blessed us with, and all of us have great blessings. God, I pray, help us to humble ourselves before you and, and be willing to, to cling to those loosely, that we would use them for your glory, that we would give where we have opportunity and there is need, that we would share where there is opportunity and need. God, I pray, help us to be grateful and thankful, gracious and generous people because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And God, I pray for unbelievers today. God, I pray capture their attention. Help them to understand that the pursuit of wealth and riches is a dead-end road. And riches without God is poverty, an eternal poverty, and separation from the one true God. God, I pray, draw unbelievers to yourself to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today to start pursuing what's, what's truly valuable, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience to, to you, Lord, and your word, and joy, joy this side of heaven, and joy forevermore in eternity. And we will thank you for that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.